How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 194. We we had a really long pre-slideshow slide today. Preamble. The Cinema Preamble. Shit Show Podcast. Yes. That no one has access to. No. It's exclusive. <laughs> it's exclusive it's all, for us. All adult comp, um, content and... Mm, um, private stories behind and the, the stories behind the voices... <laughs> the story's fine, the voices. And I'm really thirsty. So Ah, oh, do, do you want one of my one of your eight many, water many, bottles? Many water bottles. I've always felt bad about asking to have a water like a water bottle. No, like, go ahead. Just take, I'll, take, I'll take one. Take uh, that one. That one. That's go. a good How one. How are you, Jake? I'm oh. good. I'm not as thirsty as you are. So I'm not gonna <laughs> There it is. Gulp, gulp, gulp. He's doing a good job at hiding his gulp, so I have to replicate it. That's professional. 194 episodes. Exactly. You can, you can keep it on your side. Thanks, buddy. I have to wash it now. <laughs> That's why I feel bad. No, it's fine. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I've been good. Um, I Actually, I have a little say tr- uh, trade secret for everyone. Trade secret? Because, uh, again, I didn't do any Moby watching this past week. But when I went to cancel the Moby account, because I might as well re activate it when I'm actually able to, to watch stuff. Um, I had to click through so many, are you sure? Yeah, are you sure? Are you do. sure? To the point where it just says, do you want to just have an extended month trial? I was like, oh, okay. So I clicked that. So that's how you get a month free trial. Little You're lucky. Trade secret. They charged me. They charged I ran you. out of time. Oh. They charged me for the month. So I've cancelled my subscription. Fair I enough. got offered a cheaper subscription rate. Oh. So that's my little... Movie in charge, but yes, I probably should use the month I've paid for now. Yeah, yeah, um, might as well. Petit Man not on there yet. No, I'm still waiting. That's so yeah. weird. The I love that they market. There, but... Yeah, they market that, and they're marketing like Oppenheimer and stuff. And you're like, they're fucking Oppenheimer. Yeah, see, that'd be really very exclusive access yeah. <laughs> several months before it comes out. My goodness. But yeah, let's talk about the film of the week, Jake. Let's, more let's do that. Uh, a piece of trivia. From the film of the week being, don't worry, darling. Have you got anything I worry. for me? I do. I do, in fact. So, uh, as seen in the trailer, you get glimpses of Frank's house. Mm. And, of course, all the houses have a very classic sort of nuclear family 50s look and vibe to them. Yes. Um, but Frank's house specifically is the Kaufman uh, Desert, Desert House? Not Desert House. Desert House in Palm Springs. And it's actually... Even though the, the the building itself has been photographed many many times, I think most famously for Slim Aaron's poolside gossip photograph. So a lot of things like that. Um, <laughs> I like your shirt, Zeke. Thank you. <laughs> and you whipped up. Um, but I think this is the first time that this the the place has been used for extensive um, for extensive filming for like a very a specific film. Mm. I think I think shots of it have been used in films, but this is definitely like the primary use of it, from what I understand. So. That's pretty cool in terms of the the architecture and the visuals of the film. I really like yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's a. I'm probably gonna go for. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I probably should go for something <laughs> that's not too controversial. Okay. You want to get into the drama? No, actually, I <laughs> look. I do find. I do find some of these quite interesting. Like the the film script first appeared on the 2019 blacklist. Yes. Much like Booksmart was on the blacklist yeah. and Olivia Wilde picked it up so when did we t- we talked about it a long time ago the blacklist Inch fascinating list yeah yeah and it's quite an intriguing sort of um, 
topic of mm. conversation and uh, to have uh, a director on both of her films mm. pick both of her scripts up from there. Um, you know, no, though this isn't a director's corner, it is nice to talk sure. a little bit about the creative behind projects, especially mm. this creator and <laughs> this project. Yes. Jake. What a controversy. Obviously, this film is too new to be on the, f- the poster behind me. Mm-hmm. But Jake, would you include Don't Worry Darling on your 1,100 films to watch? No. Now, I will preface by saying this, because we'll, we'll get it all into it later. Later in the show, of course. I don't hate this film at all. Okay. But I wouldn't put it on the list. There are there are much smarter, much more well-done versions of this type of mm. commentary. Yes. On, on many things. I mean, the film's about a lot of things, but mm. this... Uh, I mean, I... I I'm going to say it because I made I compared this film to this film before I even saw the film. Just wanted to get another film in there. Uh, Truman Show. I would put that on the list far more. Um, One of the films that Olivia Wilde cited. Oh, well, there you go. Influence and inspiration. So. Yeah, well, I, th- I think I was talking to a friend about it. It was, I think I think I was sending him audio recordings on all the drama. I was explaining him all the drama. And then I, I basically quickly... You know, um, loglined the film as sort of a Truman Show esque film. So I said that before I even watched the film. So I think it's fair to to say that without it, you know, being any sort of an implication of a spoiler. But I would much rather put that film on my eleven hundred films list before this one. Yeah. What about you, Zeke? Yeah, nah. <laughs> I think yeah, nah, yeah, nah. I think it's the fact that she cited uh, Truman Show and Inception as two major influences, and both Inception's of those films an interesting one. Yeah. are probably wildly superior to this film. And mm. there are things to like about this film, but there are things that leave you so scratching your head. Or is this is this film really needing to be sci-fi? Or you know, even even if we're con- you're putting it up against films that have similar allegories and go in drastic, like you know, in crazier ways that probably handle it just as well. Mm. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to talk about that part in particular, the the piece, because obviously our conversation is going to include a lot of the production context mm. stuff, and then we're gonna break down. Yeah, I'd like to really segmentate those two, like talk about the drama, sort of how it may have influenced the film and, and you know, the the uh, the fun think, side of it before we get into the actual I think film. that that's the most important thing is how that stuff could affect the piece of footage, the film we're watching. Sure. Because I think that, to me, is... It's certainly the, going to affect the reception behind it. Yeah. Um, and there, there are stories out there that do in, in, infer that it affected the actual final edit of the film, so to speak. But there we go. Um, well, we'll get into that soon. But I would like to—I would really like to separate those two conversations as much as possible. A little room in the middle of that Venn diagram, um, because for the most part, I was watching this film completely just in the back of my mind. Um, I was yeah. able to isolate the drama from the actual film itself. Sure. So that was good. I was able to do that. But Zeke, mm. what else have you been watching this past week? Not a lot. Now we're in a—we're in a bit of crunch time mm. with the. Uh, Sort of wrapping up university, so not not too much. I have caught um, mostly just show stuff. I've watched the first 
like I said, I, I think I talked about Sunderland till I die last week on the show and mm. um, finished up that the two seasons of that show. Nice. So I've, I've been feeling the, the sports docu-series. Mm. So I thought I'd tackle Netflix again. Um, and I actually was looking at something that was quite, I remember, quite praised at the time when it came out. And I just never got around to it because I'm a big fan of basketball. Okay. Um, and that was the docu-series The Last, da- Last Dance. Ah, um, yeah. Which centers around uh, the five-time champions, Chicago, Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan's mm. Chicago Bulls, and sort of how when they were going for a sixth consecutive title, which, you know, we've just had our AFL grand final. That's like winning mm. five premierships in a row, which has actually never happened in AFL history. Right. In 150 years. So to do this in basketball, you know, the, the, the world's version of this sport and to do it five times in a row and and it breaks down sort of key members of that Chicago Bulls team that led to this dynasty existing so not just Michael Jordan but like Scottie Pippen and and um yeah it's quite interesting because you're sort of sitting there going wow um you know it gives a bit of biopics on each of them but it always brings it back and the sort of dynamic of power and what this team really represented at the time, and why a lot of time, like a lot of people, praise this to be the greatest sports team ever, because mm. they've won five in a row of something, and were sound like undisputed for like three of those years. I watched the first four episodes of a ten-part series, very forty-minute yep. episodes, so definitely considerably long, and it is very entertaining and very engaging. So I've really enjoyed the first four episodes of that. Nice. The only thing, other thing I've caught in the last week uh, is I did catch the first was it four episodes of Rick and Morty for season six. Oh, uh, yeah. I I almost bit the bullet. I just, I completely, I was like, oh, it's coming out great. And I just have not, have not sat down to watch any of it. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think there's four. I mean, by the time this podcast goes up, it'll be five available. Oh, it'll be cool. Yeah. So, I think it's every Monday they do drop. So, um, yeah, the first four have been... They're enjoyable. I actually think it's a, it's a bit refre- it's refreshing. Obviously, having a bit more of a canonical story to follow, so we're really oh, okay. so we've really sort of knuckled down into one family. Um, right. Okay. Um, cool. I don't know if you remember the the finale of five pretty well. So yeah. The, the does fina- it could, does it literally continue yeah. from that? Okay, so that's interesting. We have canonically picked a Rick and a Morty to follow, and right. Okay. And Actually, yeah, that is kind of interesting because I remember I sort of dismissed the ending of season five as almost like too meta and just or too anti-meta, in the fact that it just felt like the writers were so sick of being requested to do this canonical linear storytelling that they just kind of made one as like an fu to the audience. But if they're committing to that, then that's kind of cool. I want to see how that plays out. Yeah, and they've got this this version of the the family that's so self-aware. Mm. Um of the world they're in like there's no right so you know you like this family has a couple of uh, like i think it's they've talked like in the first episode they basically address that oh so it's sort of a hodgepodge of of some characters are from this particular universe but the others were replacements right yep so like and they very clearly highlight who's like the who was dead in this universe for them yep. to sort of move into it and it's cool because um, it, they make it very, 
basically the thing that grounds them into this canonical story is the portal gun's not working. Mm. So Rick is forced to... These adventures are forced to stay within the spaceship's range. (laughs) So it's become very, very canonical. That's interesting. And it's actually made it, I think, quite refreshing because it's quite funny. Yeah, because it's it's almost like that's the double-edged sword of being able to do whatever you want with the portal gun is you can do whatever you want. And that could become incredibly tedious and it's if they're sort of self-limiting themselves and the kinds of adventures they can have you're really selling me on this this sounds great it was it was and and to be fair you know look dan Harmon's worth talking about this week because <laughs> i know you're um, excited because we're getting that that movie um <laughs> so was it peacock tv which how many times have you made that reference on this podcast and a movie and the movie's um, finally and, happening and the movie's finally happening so yeah obviously community announcing that they're officially going to make a movie which i hope is like a firefly-esque movie that really completely ties the mm. sort of ties the bows on on everything yeah so well, you always saying to me over messenger you, you sort of want it to be almost like avengers-esque comedy spectacle yeah. is that what you're saying yeah yeah, yeah. like uh you know because the season six has all the characters complete like we'd lost half the cast at this point because they'd moved on to do other things and yeah who was left you were left with this very clear we're we're dis- we're going off now and doing mm. our own things, but we'll be back. One like, and the joke was end of movie, and yeah, I always thought the movie would come. Um, it it wasn't like something like The Office where it was very clear like that was kind of the end. Sure, like, the, there's no movie campaign for The Office. Yeah, um, there was kind there was kind of a continuation campaign around COVID because The Office like kind of re exploded. During, like, very early COVID days, but I don't think that was a very serious thing. Yeah, whereas there was definitely the openness there, and, you know, we're talking about this portal gun flexibility, and and the fact that I know it's not just Harmon with Rick and Morty, it's, it's, um, is it Justin Banks? Oh, uh, Jason, oh my god, how am I thinking his name? He he plays Rick and Morty. Yeah. Oh my god, this is actually kind of killing me now. (laughs) I feel bad. I mean, this this plays into the fact that, like, Rick and Morty's in this weird... Se- in 2007... Oh, okay. Okay, so... 2007. Sorry, 2017. Mm. When the third season... First off, the April Fool's season premiere. Just genius. And then the rest of season three played out. Like, the hype for Rick and Morty in, in that year was just astronomical. Mm. And almost immediately after season three, it just kind of dipped. And I don't see anyone talking about Rick and Morty really at all anymore, let alone like, oh, some people still kind of watch it. And it's like, no, I I think, I don't think I know anyone else who's even up to date other than you right now. So, <laughs> go um, you. <laughs> but yeah, no. Yeah, so, okay. to your point with the sixth season, Fred, they're int- reintroducing these new ideas. That's interesting. And I, I think it's one of those things where you look at like the 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 portal gun situation where you're like, oh, it's that unlimited freedoms. And I'm like, yeah, but I I watched like five seasons of Community using... Somehow turning a community like school campus into whatever they really wanted, and, yeah. And so, and at times it, you were just head scratch. Like, I think I what I marvelled about that show was the ability for them to motif and homage so many movies by using the most neutral, boring, like in your head, the most boring mm. uh, setting, uh, yeah. a school, yeah. really. You know, it's community college, so they could get away with the adult humor, but it's yeah. no different to a high school or anything mm. like that. I mean, 
the fact that they turn a, a paintball episode into an episode of Star Wars was just like so good. <laughs> and I think that that comedy just, you know, you, and I like The Office, but The Office never did anything like that. Never really pushed outside it. The whole thing was a, was grounded office based humor. Sure, yeah, and um, and even though it got a bit more silly after like the first season, but it, it always retained that grounded storylines where you, yeah. you're going to build entire episodes around. Um, I'm trying to think of the most mundane thing they do, but like, oh, someone can't use the copy machine. Yeah. Someone has to fix the copy machine. They, someone they hits can't. someone with their car. Yeah. Or like, well, that even that's like wild for yeah. the office. <laughs> yeah. And whereas like this, like season two of Community, it's like, like the Dean orders like stuff from a military warehouse and it turns people <laughs> into zombies. Yeah. Like, and that's it's just bonkers. Yeah. And it's just so, while they're, and they're like, doing a zombie apocalypse episode while the ABBA soundtrack's playing. Yeah. Because that was on <laughs> that was on his playlist. And I'm just like, wow, this is just such funny. So it's like the, that obscene marriage has, has happened. Shaun before. of the Dead as well with Queen. Yeah, Queen, absolutely. Yeah. And, and everything everywhere all at once with like all the comedies around the IRS building becoming a giant playground. Yeah. There's kind of like that underlying thing for that film as well. Yeah, so... It is cool. I've actually enjoyed the first four episodes. Nice. Um, Very excited. I forget how good the voice casting for that show is, though. It's oh, yeah. It's definitely... Having, I mean, I think Chris Parnell was, like, one of the funniest people. <laughs> like, he plays Jerry. I mean, he plays Cyril and Archer, and he's just oh, so yeah. funny. And the woman from Scrubs. Oh, I always forget her name. Oh, I couldn't she tell you. Beth. From Scrubs. Oh, Beth. Um, oh, my God. See, oh, my God. But this is the thing. I'm blanking on all of their names. Because I'm just kind of removed from this Rick and Morty love phase. I'll get it now. There's a Spencer in there somewhere. <laughs> Spencer Graham is the one who plays Summer. Gotcha, gotcha. That's no, Sarah else. Chalk. That's who I'm ah, Sarah, okay. But yeah, what about yeah, you? I'm what are you watching? Yeah, yeah, not as much in comparison. I'll stick to the Netflix side of things. Cause since Dope. you're watching Rick and Morty, I watched Blonde. So what's Blonde really about? So, I still couldn't tell you. <laughs> No, so Blonde obviously did its. Thi- I, I think it was Venice. It did its thing, and um, I think a lot of the hype leading into it was it was going to get its NC seventeen rating. It was going to be a true like R rated Marilyn Monroe movie. And anyway, so I'm trying to think where to even begin with this film. Um, I think it's a very so it's Andrew uh, Dominique Dominique I believe who's he did the um. You know, assassination of Jesse James and um, mm-hmm. uh, what was the other one he did? I'll check, but like, not really his forte of film, I would think. Oh, he did like Chopper as well and Killing Them Softly and things like that. So, this feels like him trying to bring like a very artsy fartsy vision to the story of Norma Jean, Marilyn Monroe. But from my understanding, this is based on a, a fictionalized novel or a fictionalized take on her life, or that, okay. or a fictionalized. Um, bio, a biographical piece that they've just slapped the Marilyn Monroe name onto that. So I'm kind of watching this as a skeptic because I'm already in that mindset of, well, I don't know if any of this is true or fake. And I say this as someone who's not really that familiar with the story of Marilyn Monroe, have seen many of her films, if at all. Mm. So I'm already in this weird place going into the film. And like I said, it's doing this artsy-fartsy thing where the aspect ratio is just constantly shifting the it's going it's going from black and white to color for seemingly no reason at all i could not tell you what the logic is behind a lot of those stylistic um 
you know, changes mm. and, and throwing you around. And, and overall, it just kind of has this fleeting feeling. But at times it works. Like, I think the best thing about this film is that by the third act, the film is just straight up like this disorientating, inescapable sort of schizophrenic nightmare, which is really cool. And I use those words to describe Last Night in Soho. And now looking at it, it's like, I think Last Night in Soho should have went way harder into the schizophrenic nightmare sort of imagery of that film, which is, is in itself also bogged down by a lot of those basic plot points of now she goes to the library to do research. Now she goes to the cops to you know, report what she's found. Like, a lot of those beats sort of dragged it mm. away. And I think Blonde really does take it to that level in terms of the surrealistic cinematography. But that's maybe the last, like, 20 minutes of the film. And the two and a half hours that precede that 20 minutes is just... so It's one-dimensional junk. And okay. I think... What do you mean by that? I think... First off, the, and like I said, I'm not a huge Marilyn Monroe like expert. I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of footage of her. But the way she's portrayed and the way that Netflix is promoting this film, because every clip they put on their Facebook page of this film, which I saw a few before watching the film, is pretty much Ana Diarmez being sexy for 10 seconds, followed very closely by her screaming and crying and yelling. And it feels like that's just every scene in this film. To the point where I have no idea who she really is. And... Again, without the knowledge of what her real life was and the fact that this is a fictionalized take on her life, all I have to work with is sort of what the film is presenting to me, which at first seemed to be, this is Norma Jean putting on a mask, you know, to deal with trauma and to deal with pain. She puts on the mask of Marilyn Monroe. You know, Jimmy McGill turns into Salt Goodman, very similar sort of thing. And I didn't get that because, like I said, every scene is her being sexy for 10 seconds then hysterical for the next five minutes and then repeat in several different scenarios over and over again until she just goes absolutely insane and then I I guess dies at the end. I think in real life it was an overdose and uh, assumed suicide, that whole, you know, thing. But with the, <clears throat> the way the way the film portrays it, it's just there's no subtlety. You know, there's no subtlety in, in that mask that I was mentioning earlier. There's no subtlety when she's talking to a CGI unborn baby or her photo frame of her dad comes to life and starts speaking to her. It's all, like, really awkward and clunky, and that's where, like, the artsy-fartsy side of it comes in. The fact that she calls all of her husband's daddy because she has daddy Ugh. issues, like, that that's not subtle, bro. <laughs> there's no subtlety in, like, you know, when men ask if she's on her period or when she's going for an audition, they ask, what do you think of the character? And she's like, well, I think this is the character and I think it's based on this film. Oh, he's a dumb blonde, so I don't believe you. This, it's just, we've seen it a million times. It's like bare bones, straightforward, all men are assholes approach to this kind of film. And especially when she, as in Marilyn Monroe, is so victimized over and over and over again to the point where it's like, well, again, I don't, believe any of this the film claims to be a critique on the male gaze that is complete bullshit okay you can't have these vintage silhouette shots where we zoom in on Anna Diamas's ass or the a 10 minute slow motion zoom around of her panties during you know, the famous her skirt flows up from mm. the floor great scene they do that over and over again she's half naked you know the, the whole nearly the whole film and it's like that is not how you critique the male gaze you want to know how you do that? The very first film we talked about on this podcast, Private Life, 
Oh, look, it's Catherine Hahn, half naked, from the waist down. And it is not very attractive. It is not Scrubbing appealing. a tub. It's scrubbing a tub. <laughs> that is how you subvert the male gaze, not the crap that this film is pretending to do. Oof. Just this... And I, again, I don't even have any sort of personal connection to Marilyn Monroe. I understand why everyone else is so offended watching this film because I'm pretty offended and I don't even have that attachment. Yeah, wild. So, other than, like I said, the third act, I think it really starts to get into this indescribable, inescapable sort of fleeting, flowing effect. I think that's cool. But the two and a half hours it takes to get to that point is just meddling and fleeting and just disrespectful. And pick an aspect ratio, for God's sake. Pick an aspect ratio. Pick a colour. <laughs> Stick to that colour. We're not Cherry here. We're not the Russos. Like, even that was... A, anyway, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I think it's like everything. It, it's like when you're talking about like the black and white colour thing or the ratio stuff. Mm. It We always, when we see it, we're able to formulate why they're doing it. Yes. Like, you should be able to. Um... And if you can't pick that reason, and the reason needs to be obvious enough that it, with something that distinct, mm. it needs to be obvious enough that you're able to understand the point behind it. So exactly, you know, it's and I was actively, you know, from scene to scene, I was, you know, okay, this one's in black and white, this one's in color. Sometimes they would change between shots. I could not decipher why. What was the point of any and of it? And we can go back to things as, as bare bones as the way Memento deals with black and white, mm. you know, that it's it's about memories and recapturing sort of things. And it's, it's the ability when the black and white meets the colour, that's yep. the whole the whole point of that narrative. And But we see all that storytelling with what Nolan does, and that's, that's like, that's filmmaking 101. And then yeah. sometimes when people get too artistic, and Dominic's pretty funny, like, he's an interesting, you know... He's had some very successful, very highly acclaimed Nick Cave documentaries have come mm. out, and Chopper is is pretty widely, I mean, is widely positive here in Australia as as one of the best yeah. sort of biopics of such a dangerous man, and most people will religiously defend um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward of uh, Robert Ford, and mm. I like that movie. That's yeah. the only one I've actually seen from that. And I've seen a bit of Killing Me Self, Killing Them Softly, okay. but I haven't seen the whole thing. Um, and I, but I really like Sasha and Jesse James. But like I said, to get something so wrong and it's getting destroyed on things like Letterbox and, and mm. stuff like that. And, oh yeah, people and, hated this at the Venice screening, from what I heard. So there you go. Pretty sure it was Venice. Yeah, I just I kind Let of step back for Anna Diarmas. Yeah, well, I mean, look, she's fine in it, great. It's kind of hard to decipher because, again, she's just being told to be hysterical for 90% of the film. I mean, one of the other things, and again, I did bare bones minimum research, but it's like one one of the things is, you know, her first husband, I'm trying to remember the name, but he's the famous baseballer, and they they call him the ex-athlete in the credit, which is really annoying. But he he finds nude photos of her that she took early in her career. And starts, you know, beating the crap out of her. And that's just portrayed as, oh, okay, well, she had news leaked and her husband beat her up for it, and that's the end of that. And there's a whole thing in Wikipedia about how that actually was a boost in her career because that actually generated more interest in her movies. And it's like, that's in a more interesting nuance take from an audience in the 50s that it would have been cool to see this film explore. Mm. Because if it's just all pain and misery, then it becomes a caricature. 
And I see a lot of people... 167 minutes too. That's it's a, long. It's so long. And I think... I see people write comments. The very few positive comments of, are pretty much just people saying like, oh, poor Mary and what the, the awful thing she had to go through in her life. And I'm thinking, that can't have been the point of this film because it's all fictional. It may be exaggerated, sure. But again, just having that little checkbox of not entirely... And, you know, you can get into any biopic and pick it apart of what's real and what's not and yada, yada, yada. But this this seems to be shamelessly mm. not tracking with her life. And at that point, I was like, well, then what's the point of the film? I didn't like Blonde very much, <laughs> as you can tell. <laughs> Did you catch anything else this week? Um, No. Unfortunately, that was it. That and the film of the week. So there's a bit of a theme going on in terms of uh, men... <laughs> Well, don't worry, Men Jake. It's time for us to... Unless you've got any career updates or anything. Oh, no, nah, that's fine. Let's move into our film of the week. Jake, what are we watching? Let's pick up the show, Zeke. Watching Don't Worry, Darling. I'm so sorry I forgot to tell you, but you're not feeling very well. And the only way to cure it is if we stay home all day. Bye. Bang, bang! Victory is safe and secure. Here you can live the life you deserve. We can all live the life. Frank has built something truly special. What he's created out here, it's, it's a different way, a better way. Once unfamiliar faces, strangers, one and all, now one brave family. All of you wives, we men, we ask a lot. We ask for strength, a shoulder to cry on, food at home, a house clean, and discretion above all else. And that, that's very difficult. What is the enemy of progress? Chaos. Yeah. <laughs> Nasty word. Chaos. The one thing they ask of us is to stay here where it's safe. I was here when you got here? Yeah. You're sleeping in the bedroom. That's good. Just breathe. Most of my patients have had nightmares. Violet, where did you meet Bill? We met on a train to Boston. Boston. You dropped your ticket, and he bent down, picked it up, gave it to you, right? Thank you for your loyalty. What are we doing? Changing, Changing the, the world. world. They're lying about everything. Keep calm and carry on. Welcome to Victory. Ooh. A 1950s housewife living with her husband in a utopian experimental community begins to worry that his glamorous company may be hiding disturbing secrets. Don't worry, no comma. Darling. Like, this one has a lot of drama around it. And dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> lots of dinner parties. Lots and lots and lots of dinner parties. Um, okay. Good. So, wait, are oh, you talking about drama as in off, off the cuff? So, you off, just want to let you want run through that? Yeah, yeah. So, I wrote um, a few key points. Because I had to watch a video on it. Oh, really? <laughs> 16 minute video. Oh, well, there you go. So, if, if I miss something, be sure to butt in and, and let me know. But. Mm. I figured before we actually get into the real um, crux of the movie, and and there is one piece of all the drama that I think is um, 
worth mentioning that could have tangibly altered the film in terms of, I would say, mostly direction, the directing of the film, um, that I reckon we can use to segue into the actual film's conversation because I do want to talk about that as much as possible Mm. without the context of the drama because I think there's a lot to say within the film speaking for itself. But until then, let's catch up with speed and what's going on. Sure. (laughs) Don't worry, darling. So this film gets, what, announced that it's going to be... Uh, announced at a at a comic con or something, or Olivia Wilde's doing a talk or something. Does, I I think that she gets served papers. Yeah, so I guess the prelude into all of that, where I think she's promoting the film, I think she that's reveals it. the second trailer to it. I think that's what's going on at um I think it's CinemaCon. I okay. think that's the one that it is, um, where she has served custody papers from Jason Sudeikis. Not not personally, it's not him serving the papers, yes. of course. Um, but Good that old Ted obvious, Lasso. The good old Ted Lasso being like, yo, here you go. Um, which probably stemmed from the fact that she had seemingly an off-onset affair with Harry Styles on this film. Now, Jeez. Harry Styles was... Ori- or the character, Jack... Is it Chambers? Jack Chambers. was so the, originally uh, meant... Hmm? Sorry, originally meant to be Shia LaBeouf, right? Yes, originally meant to be played by Shia LaBeouf, um, who... It was insinuated during sort of the early press of this film. This So this is all after the film's been shot that we start to, to hear a lot of these comments. But it's coming out and stuff with Olivia Wilde. She's saying that he was essentially fired uh, because his work ethic was not going to work with the rest of the cast and sort of insinuated that it was to make Florence Pugh feel more you know, comfortable on set. Now, Shia LaBeouf turns around and has you know pretty pretty concrete proof that he wasn't fired. In fact, he quit. And there's proof, there's video footage and text messages and all of this of Olivia Wilde pretty much begging him to stay on. And there's a... I think it's to do more so with um, there wasn't enough rehearsal time. Um, Florence P was pretty busy. She obviously jumps from film to film to film. So the timing just wasn't going to work out, so he wanted to jump ship. And it mm. seemed like um, Olivia Wilde was sort of insinuating, you know, Miss Flo, as she called her, <laughs> was the problem. And that she needed to get her shit together. Yeah, and and also that it, it, the she wild was sort of because of Shia LaBeouf, who is going through a, a court case right now for uh, de- right for hun- Honey Boy thing stuff. For I think domestic yeah. abuse too with a partner. Right, and sort of jumping, kind of using that as oh, it's a catalyst. Because That's right. You're the, correct. Sort of trying to latch it onto the the film's themes, which is interesting. That mm. there is actually, as much as we're going to try and separate the two, yeah, there is correlation. And then if there is actually, correlation. Let's let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah, like the the fact that she in that situation there were there were interviews where she's saying like, oh, he was taken off because like that sort of inferral of of abuse on the on the set or he wasn't a like an ethically morally right person on set right sort of tying it into the themes of the movie that she's trying to make mm. and and yeah he's gone no and obviously that's where a lot of those text messages <laughs> between Shire and, and Florence <laughs> were happening where it was like no this stuff's and it was actually him outwardly mm. quitting as a result of almost getting like sort of set up to be this sort of fall guy for men in this situation. 
There's a whole thing about her taking shots at Jordan Peterson too. There was that. Oh yeah. Well, I think I think the idea, and it's like we're we're well into the film discussion now, so we're gonna get I guess a little bit of a spoiler on that end. But the idea that Frank is like the Jordan insert, and that that's what that character is based on. Incel, isn't it? Isn't that what it's called? Well, well, that he's like a hero to incels. Yes. I'm saying insert is in like his character is meant to be. Yeah, that that that's the correlation there between those two. Um, and I did I did watch the video where he you know responds to it and apparently got very emotional. He was he's teary eyed and and talking about how what he's actually doing is trying to to talk to you know marginalized men and and yeah talking about incels more specifically men who don't know how to get with women. But that idea of of talking to these people with a more of an empathetic in intellectual discussion, and it was in, and I'm not here to def- I don't really care one way or the other for him, but. It was interesting seeing that and then twisting it in that sense where it's like, okay, well, now it's not just about, you know, that man over there is bad. But it's like, let's look deeper into what are the actual intentions Mm. of these people. Um, That's sort of like a side thing, the Jordan Pearson stand-in, if you will. But all of this happens with Shia LaBeouf. So now you've got Harry Styles in place in, in that role, now on set. Now, allegedly... And this is when they get together. This is when the whole this leads to all Jake, Jason, Sudeikis stuff going on. But what this leads to is Florence Pugh being very uncomfortable on set. Uh, every now and then, Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles would not be on set, so seemingly running off together somewhere. I think attending a wedding in one case, and it actually left Florence Pugh obviously very upset. But also in some cases, allegedly directing scenes herself, which is very interesting. I mean, that's because that's a, there's a TikTok it. video of a PA. Have oh, you heard about this? No, so, that's new to me. So there's a... <laughs> this is juicy. <laughs> this happened while they were... This was, like, I think towards the end of, of set, uh, like, them shooting the film. Yeah. And, oh, I should have showed it to you before we started the conversation. Oh, but, this is interesting, though. Um, It was this PA, it was this woman that claims on a TikTok video that she was on set of Don't Worry Darling, but right. she doesn't use any names, mm. and this was before any of this other stuff came out with Florence. Interesting. Because this is where it's come from, I think. This is one of the sources that she was directing scenes mm. for. Okay. Um, that that was the whole thing where it would be things like, oh, like, she's dating this English, like, they would refer to British, was, is Olivia Wilde British? Is she British? Isn't she British? American. I'm not sure. I think sure regardless, they're inferring like she started dating Harry Styles on the yep. set, but yep. like they were already dating beforehand. Like mm. there's a whole photo, and this is all behind the scenes stuff. And then inferring this young and up and coming actress is now directing half the film, and <laughs> she's this PA that's come up to multiple times at the trailers, hearing these arguments between, yeah, allegedly between Wow and Pew, and and how they're having these arguments about um, the fact that she's been running off and leaving Florence Pugh to direct. Interesting, yeah. So there's this whole thing. I want to see Florence Pugh direct a feature now. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah, not this film. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah wild. That's yeah, but back over to you. Yeah, that was a whole video. Yeah, so that, that kind of leads into um, Florence Pugh's lack of press and the fact that there's a, a legend that, like, you know, the chairman of the studio had to pretty much convince her to just do the one appearance Again, I think it was Venice um, to just show up on the red carpet. Uh, I love the joke, the tweet of them all, like the seating arrangement of like um, the director and the cast and be like, oh, whoever arranged this is definitely arranged uh, a marriage with divorced parents. <laughs> so it was a good and comment. Florence but... Pugh, didn't she rock up and just sort of like take the piss or something? Like that? 
I don't know if she took the piss, but she showed up, was, you know, not very involved. I think she wasn't making eye contact with Olivia Wilde. She walked out pretty early into the, you know, the credits of the film when it was all finished playing or whatever, which, you know, read into it however you want. Um, The other side of the story is she literally came back from shooting Dune, got on a plane, did this for a few hours and got back on a plane to continue doing Dune 2. So that is sort of the official story. She's shooting that. She can't do press for this film, but... Also, she hasn't gone out of her way to refute, refute, Jesus Christ, refute any of these stories that have come up, which is interesting because that leads into the whole did Harry spit on Chris Pine story, which I think both of them have kind of joked about slash refuted. So I never quite, something's obviously happened. I don't think he spat on him. Nah. But Chris Pine does have a very clear facial expression <laughs> when Harry goes to sit down next to him. I just think Chris, because I've seen some of the, the presses. Yeah. I just don't think Chris has a very high opinion of Harry's acting ability. Like, I think it's a more professional I, yeah, I don't. disdain mm. more than a personal disdain. And that's, that's obviously, that's all me, just that's me. But from what I've seen, right. it seems more like it's, I've worked really hard to be a really big actor and you're just this pop star that's come in and started acting. Right. Um, doesn't help his case. He he very childishly spits on on Chris Pine. <laughs> yeah, and then there's also that mentality. I am a real actor. And then there's the like the problem is it's like you can't help. We we often do talk about production context, and sadly, this is just the production context behind this film, mm. and how production conflict uh, context influences the film. Now, if we think about the film's subject matter. And, you know, you've got Olivia doing all of these things where it's like, oh, it's like all oh, these horrible men trying to control women's lives and all this stuff. And then she's this, you know, what, she 10, 10 plus years older than this star who mm-hmm. seemingly landed a role in a big film out of nowhere, mm-hmm. then happens to be directing, uh, dating the director. The, 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 when I was watching this video... Um, that explaining all this and this sure. was a, she's a female YouTuber so she was saying and she was just like that just doesn't look good because it's like if that's a male doing the same thing it's yeah there's a, there's a there's a level of like that uncomfortable nurturing oh, what's the word I'm thinking of it's grooming grooming that's it thank you the, the, like, that un- uncomfortable grooming aspect to it where like the older director is dating well, the younger and actor and yeah we, and we openly like smear that. That, that was, oh, that's 25, 30 years ago. These men, these 50-year-old men trying to date these 20-year-old women mm. and that's disgusting and that's gross. And whenever we watch an older movie, they normalise it, like, quite a bit. I mean, sure. we've... But, you know... We made jokes of, about Leo just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. In the first half of the show, yeah, but it's but it's the position of power thing. Mm. That's the difference. Yeah. If a 50-year-old man just dates a 20-year-old woman or a 50-year-old woman dates a 20-year-old man, there's nothing wrong there. It's the fact that this is a professional working environment and if you're running off to weddings and stuff, allegedly. Mm. During during a COVID shoot as well, keep that in mind. Yeah, so... Safety precautions and all. What's... Where's the professionalism in that? Yeah. Uh, if we're talking about it solely from a professional's point of view. And then on top of that, you know, you're talking about how inappropriate that male director was tackling a Marilyn Monroe. Mm. And how, like, he's trying to get rid of the male... Challenge the male gaze or mm. whatever. Yet he's basically shooting these 10-minute illicit, <laughs> borderline illicit um, footage. Yeah. And it's, like, cool. Like, and we, we meet that with the same rejection. It's like if this woman's talking about using power and exploiting it mm. and only using it when it's necessary, like, using it to control and stuff, 
Well, you've just cast someone allegedly using your power, mm. not because they were the right person for the role. No, anyone could have played Jack Chambers. Yes, just just so it's out there, anyone could have played that character. Yeah, <laughs> didn't have to be Harry Styles. So it, you know, we can sit there and it's good to know that stuff because if mm. you watch the film. Especially if you've got your lead actress having to direct parts of it because your actual director's decided, oh, my name's already on it. It doesn't, like, I can just... Uh, if that actually comes out to be true, and I don't mm. know if we'll ever get the concrete thing, you got to start it's asking tricky. questions of things like Booksmart and stuff, right? Like, mm. how much was that Olivia Wilde? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's, it's tricky, and it's like, I feel like that kind of... I don't know how much of the timings evolved because if that was true of Booksmart, would that have come out around the time of Booksmart as well? True. Because I don't know how long seeded this hate for Olivia Wilde seems to stem. I did not get it for a long time, and and then I saw a lot of the Shia LaBeouf stuff come out, and I was like, okay, I kind of get it. The whole throwing him under the bus, that sucks. I think it's also the fact that every time someone's been like, oh, that's pretty poor, or that's poor mm. behavior, or that's unprofessional... It's the falling back on, oh, well, I'm a woman and you're just hating me because I'm a woman. Mm. Where it's like most <laughs> of the people caught, like, it, it, it's that bringing it back to the, 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 bi- like the gender binary argument and being so, like, like, like the things like the Peterson where it's like, oh, this character who, you know, spoiler alert, it's not very complex in his nature. He's, <laughs> he's definitely, it's definitely a film that's style over substance. Um, not to say sure. Chris Pine's performance yeah. is bad. No. I just don't think his antagonistic character has that much going on for him. No. Um, hardly knew. In fact, I'm, I'm going to make a joke when we jump more into the film aspect sure. of this. Yep. But it, I think when you're then comparing it to someone like that, it almost felt like it was like, oh, it's kind of like that person, but I've only really watched two of their videos. Like the video mm. that women shouldn't get paid more than men. And then they're like, oh, Peterson's a bad person. Like blanket, yeah. that's yeah. it. This this academic who has controversial opinions that don't favour my point of view is suddenly completely and utterly like horrible. Yeah. I mean, the other thing as well, I was like, I watched the film and didn't really make that connection with, with Chris Pine. I mean, obviously, it's sort of at the end when you, you learn a bit more about the mystery and, and what's actually going on. You, I guess you can make that general assumption. I mean, hey, we're two white guys making a podcast right now, so <laughs> if this film doesn't have anything yeah. to say about that, <laughs> you'd be well mistaken. But that being said, and and to, to lead credence to that, I will say, I think there is some element of, and I did believe this at first with the Olivia Wilde thing, I'm sure there's still an element of it, of the fact that she is a woman, and not just that people hate her because she's a woman, but people would love to hate women that they think deserve to be hated. And I think that's an Amber Heard thing right there, that people really latched onto that because, oh, wow, a woman were allowed to dislike? Let's jump on that shit. I think there is an element of that that is true. That's very fair. But... I'm just talking about the, professional stuff, though. Like, yeah, from a professionalism standpoint, very poor performance from Olivia Wilde. Because that's... To me, I don't really care about all the personal stuff. I think it's weird to try and use things like making very negative statements that aren't very well educated about people like Peterson mm. just to get promotional value into your film. Yeah. Because a lot of it felt like, I'm going to say this really controversial thing because, oh, it appears in my film and I think my film's really good at speaking. Like, weirdly mm. using... It's it's such heavy-handed, heavy subject matter. 
Right. It would be like, it, look, it would be the equivalent of someone like Jordan Peele with something like Get Out being like, oh, well, like, and every time going out and going, oh, every time, like, a black person gets abused by a cop or treated poorly. Yeah. Like, my film's the the one you need to watch for yeah. that. It's like, we love Get <laughs> Out, Self- and 100% yeah. has a lot of that stuff. And how there, there's menacing... A, there's the- an element of parody, though, in Get Out that works, where, I mean, the way it ends, where you are anticipating being like, Oh, here's the, you know, cop black brutality. And we talked about it. And we talked about it just a few weeks ago when we did the film. And But there's that little bit of a twist of like, oh, okay, it's sort of self-aware of, of its own position in the world and how should audiences take this as like gospel in terms of like the, this commentary on this race war. And, and I, I think, think you're right. I think Olivia Wilde sort of self-inserting herself in this, I guess you would call it sort of a Me Too-esque commentary. I mean, I think it draws a little deeper than that. But... It's kind of a little, and again, a little like the Taylor Swift short film where she self-inserts herself into it as like a hero for all women who survive domestic abuse and uh, relationships. I'm like, okay, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little like that. Well, it's like you don't see Jordan Peele playing any of the characters in, in Get Out sure. or even trying yeah. to insert himself into that. He's a, a, an opin- uh, he is a director who had an opinion. And, you know, we've seen the evolution of Peel too. He hasn't made every film as overt as something like Get Out. Get sure. Out's the most aggressive with that messaging. Yeah. And even then, it's still, it's pretty, like, it's, and I mean, it's pretty overt, but it's also a ho- horror film, so it's allowed to be a little bit more on the nose. And yeah, more exactly. That's a good but point, too. I mean, it's a fair parable, that film to this, because this is sci-fi dystopian, whereas yeah. that's utopian horror, like, yeah. or dystopian And horror. I will say there are elements of horror, and don't worry, darling. Yeah. But it's, and, you know, they're both, like, sort of fishbowl films, mm. too. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, we're in this fishbowl, and something's not quite right about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think that there's, it just one of them handles their subject matter so much more tactfully and considered mm. and thinks about it, whereas the other one just gets such a binary, two-dimensional point of view. Like, I got, the fact that I walked away from, like, you know, we, we could talk about, about what, six or seven films mm-hmm. that have very similar subject matter or same sort of commentary that are astronomically better. Some of them have been title episodes of this show. Mm. Like, I will flat out say, I mean, I think Fresh tackles the same sort of subject matter <laughs> I, I got Fresh in my notes as well, actually. Like, and a- you know what else I have in here? Death Proof from Tarantino. Mm. In terms of those elements of, like, girls coming together to, to help each other and, and save them, each other and themselves from dangerous men and... I think that and Fresh, those have a lot of and isn't it funny? It's like in there. Fresh w- doesn't get nearly as much like hype because it's not got as like it's got Sebastian Stan in it, I guess, in in a crazy role. But how much more menacing was Stan as a character mm. compared to Chris Pine? And that's not because of Chris Pine's performance. That's because he's just written with a bit more like intricacy and interest and a bit more detail. That his hatred for women is far. It's a little bit more below the surface. Mm. It's there. Yeah. 100%. But it takes a little longer to get there. It takes us to dive in. Why does he like eating people? Like, oh, he's <laughs> he's doing a risky business around the kitchen while yeah. he's got a leg. Like, he's serenading a leg. Like, there's a, <laughs> there's a certain um, misogynistic psycho. Something like American Psycho even mm. taps into it. Like, like an eight misogynistic mindsets and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. And and that's what this film's trying to trying to discuss. And I think there's like there are films that are just 
handle it better. Yeah. Little Women handles it better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Florence Anything right from there, Greta like, Gerwig. Yeah. Like, I think it, uh, so it's probably a good way to transition into the film now because we are talking about film. You know, I got here women's agency, gaslighting, there's defamation of nostalgia in a sense because, I, again, another Last Night in Soho comparison. I think there's a lot of sort of anti nostalgic vibes going on. Last Night in Soho, I loved it in there because Even it is. Better. It's it sort of romanticizes the past before realizing, oh, but here's the horror that was always sort of seeped underneath it that keeps coming back in the present day. And I think there's a tiny bit of that in here. I think it's more to do with this uh, this quote that they kept using the film, the idea that chaos is the the thing or the uh, the the preventative or the enemy of uh, progress. But I think that what the twist is with the film is that progress is being displayed as you know nuclear family, 1950s you know, housewives and businessmen and that, just that whole range of iconography. It's just a mission from Fallout. <laughs> it's, it's a mission. I've got that too. Mission Fallout 3. <laughs> it is. The one where you go back it's to It's literally the same thing, yeah. It's, I, I watched the movie and I went, this is just that Fallout. Look, this came out. <laughs> this is 15 years old, this is. It they literally is the same scene. A, admittedly, one of the be- And admitted, how good is Fallout 3's story? I reckon Fallout 3 has one of the best game stories <laughs> And I know I'm in such a minor. Everyone's like, "Oh, New yeah. Vegas is way better." I think three. I've never played New Vegas, but yeah, everyone, everyone three's great. That. But the, when you go into this thing to find your dad, it's like its own little like excellent short film. Yeah, it's so clever. Where you, yeah, it, it's very. If you haven't played the game, it's almost identical. To what's going on here? 1950s sort of simulation at play, mm. um, with this sinister Spoiler. undertone. But yes. And yeah, and it's it's just that encourages you to do bad things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See the bad karma thing pop up. In oh this. no! Yeah, in Florence Pugh's head. But but that being said, like uh, that this thing that we associate with, you know, an old golden age that is is almost this unobtainable yeah. thing. We establish that with old. You know, that's a, that's an old set of iconography, and I, and they do a lot of the dancing and body movements, the fluidity and synchronization of that, compared to the structure that they're trying to make for what what's it called again? What's the Progress, not progress. Um, what's project. the name of the town? Pro- uh, Victory. Victory Project, yeah, or Victory, California, whatever they're calling it. Um, yeah, I think I, I think it's there's a lot of interesting ideas that are, that are wrapped together, and I think a lot of those quotes come together nicely. Um, I mean, I compared it a little more to again 1984 as well, where I think you got Alice, who's I think the the physical, or the yeah the physical like the look, the inspiration was from Bridget Bardo, but I think it's more like a Winston 1984, like, narrative character mm. arc, someone who's sort of imbued in this, you know, controlled dystopian society who throughout the film slowly starts to unravel the mysteries and yeah. realises how messed up everything is. And, that, and you know, we've seen other stories where, like, Fish Out of Water, where someone comes in and right from the get-go, they're already like, something's not right. This is something that Alice has, you know, seemingly lived through for months, years before this story starts to take place. The one thing I got to ask though, because I, it seems like you had a few problems with the film. Yeah, I think it's just a bit messy. I think it's a bit messy. Too. I think the pacing's very wonky, and I think part of that is you have Alice who, from the get-go, is starting to see visions and things are starting to go awry. I think it's fair to say the end of the first act is, you know, when she sees the plane, she follows up. That's kind of the point of no return. Mm. It's when she touches that glass plane and 
at this point, there's no going back. There's something wrong. She has to figure out what it is. But even with that being so, I found the act structure kind of hard to follow because she does go from needing to figure out what's going on to needing to escape to, oh, I guess it's fine, giving it another, you know, day or so. Oh, something else has happened again. Oh, this is weird. I need to get out of here. Oh, but I need to make breakfast for my hubby. Like, it just, it, it feels messy in that. Yeah. It just doesn't feel like a, fr- a thrusting forward pace. I think, I think, and it comes back to, the. I think it's important to talk about the stuff that, that this film centers around. Because, it, you know, it's things like having a director leave set could affect stuff like this. Like, because mm. then you've got two storytellers. And two st- and there's nothing wrong with having two directors, but they've both got to be on the same page about what's happening. <laughs> that could easily be happening. And then on top of that, I think the the script, I don't know what the original screenplay to screen ratio is, but mm. I think it gets caught up in its messaging in the sense that it's not got a clear end goal. It like characters don't have clear arcs mm. or, and that creates this murky story. Like, you know, there's this, this bad guy, this, this, well, he's a, he's this God, he's this God complex character in mm. Chris Pine. Who's, you know, doing these radio broadcasts and, and, you know, he, he comes to the dinner party and everyone's in awe and stuff. And, you know, you're like, okay, well, we're going to slowly peel back the layers to why he's a, a crook very early on, but mm. how we get, how does our character get to that point Yeah, where he n- thinks that's the apex and, and she needs to work that out. And like you said, it, it then in that middle part, it has mm. that, uh, you know, it, it has that really enticing content uh, concept, you know, this, this utopian world. Why, how, why is this place stuck in the 1950s? Are mm. we in the 1950s? And this is just one of those gated communities gone wrong, which mm. ha- occurred a lot back then. Yeah. And obviously, we, we start to see stuff that doesn't quite make sense. And I just kind of wish... Maybe I just feel like it got... The messaging got lost in its wanting to have this sci-fi dystopian story where we could have easily had a gated community drama mm. where maybe people were institutionalized, they were abducted, they were drugged a certain way that meant they have sort of forgot. Like, similar sort of thing. I mean, the... How how Get Out manages mm. to keep you in that goldfish bowl, right? Is fascinating, and I, it's super. They play with the supernatural, whereas this plays with the science fiction mm. genre. And I just think the 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 supernatural was just more believable, and it's not like that sci fi doesn't exist in in Peel films because we just watched Nope, and right. That that has the science fiction element. I, I think I don't know if it's like the whole science fiction versus fantasy versus you know surrealistic. Horror. I don't think it's like a genre thing that that separates those two films. I think you're right. I think it goes back to character arcs and motivation because in that one, um, with I'm forgetting his name, but in in oh my god, in Get Out, <laughs> I'm really getting thrown for a loop. Is it John? Is that his name? Uh, maybe. I can't remember, but. You know Daniel Coulier in yeah. Get Out. The well, in terms of his character arc, it's a place that he's going to. He doesn't start the film there. That's not his home. Mm. So he's going there with the idea of meeting his girlfriend's parents and indating himself in that family. And so th- that's the goal. Is his goal is related to the geographical space that's there. And as things get creepy, and he's thinking, "Oh, maybe I should get out of here." That goal that he's going for contradicts that. The idea of 
I need to, I want to get out of here, but also my my main goal is to stay here and, you know, get to know this family and sort of imbue myself in the family. While with this film, it's different because it's Alice's home that she's completely and overly satisfied with. It's it's the perfect mm. life, you know, she's got the perfect husband, the perfect house and no responsibilities and she's happy. She's happy, happy, happy. And as she has to figure out what is going on and all these creepy, you know, weird things are happening with the neighbor who's trying to kill herself and, and reveal this information. I think, I mean, the, I feel like the goal was very clear is to figure out what the hell is going on and then eventually to get out, mm-hmm. uh, much like get out. But I think the fact that there's no opposing goal to uh, there, there is the obstacle, which is the entire community stopping her from finding out what's happening. But I think it's our it, male community mostly. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot, a lot of the women either they don't believe her, or in the case of of Bunny, you know, spoiler alert, she knew the whole time that she was in a simulation, and I think that's such an interesting aspect to the answers to this mystery, which the film does not have nearly enough time to get into because it's spent most of its runtime with Alice trying to figure out what the hell's going on. When the more the more that I think about it, I only saw the film a few hours ago, mm. it wouldn't have made more sense for the midpoint of the film to be her finding out what Jack's done to her, that it's a simulation, and then the second half of the film be that maybe she's hiding from the kid, kind of like the ending to Truman, where we, we don't see a lot of camera surveillance. Yeah. It's just sort of Frank and his random goons in, in red jumpsuits running around. So I feel like you could have made a lot of the tension from the second half of this film be her physically hiding from people and trying to escape mm. and maybe not knowing how to escape as opposed to spending 95% of the film her trying to figure out what's going on, then figures out what's going on, and then, oh, crap, I have to leave. Yeah. So there's no time to to explore the dynamics of, of the answer because... Oh, now Bunny, who's literally played by the director. So you just have the director explaining, oh, well, I knew because I like the fantasy. Those girls over there, they don't know. This is how this all works. Oh, but you got to go because the narrative says you need to get out right now. I mean, that's a big problem in this film is it's too much mystery, not enough answering. And even if you didn't want to answer those things in this film, that's fine. You leave it open for a sequel, more world building. That's interesting. But I think that's... I think you're right. I think that's where the difference comes from is in Get Out, you already know sort of the, the twist mm. well before the film ends. And I and that lets you sort of develop that and understand how those mechanics and those character arcs all yeah. work. This film doesn't have enough time for that. No. And I, I think it's a, just having those... I think there's... You know, we, we come back to that that the way that the fallout narrative does and I couldn't help mm. but bring that in with this because I was thinking how how did they structure that narrative where you're you're in that mm. world for like 3 4 hours sure yeah and obviously we can't be in this movie for 3 4 hours but I think the it was just things like the repetition and like you said it's that when Truman starts to figure things out mm. he starts messing with the day like he goes yeah. on he goes on like he just starts spontaneously doing that road trip where they try and create obstacles. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Absurd and to the point where, of course, something's going on, and he knows yeah. something's going on. Yeah, 
but he he just sort of like breaks like breaks down and resets mm. then because he, he figures that's I have to play the system yeah. to get out. And the only time Alice ever does that is when she starts questioning all the couples how they met and where they met. And it's like, oh, these are all eerily very similar. It's yeah. the only time that, that Alice really does anything like that in this and film. You're 100% right. In a science fiction film, it's like this character starts to figure out some something's odd. And, you know, to quote another, I mean, we look at Gondry's like, Eternal Sunshine. Mm. It's like there's definitely trying to push the memory's limits sometimes. Like there are points when he starts to want to access more of a memory and he can't. Right. There, there's that struggle against the machine. Or being known that you're stuck into these these scientific science sci-fi boundaries, mm. and it's like, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe her discovering that, maybe not that she's completely an installation, but she's in a world that doesn't quite make a lot of sense. Much like when Truman discovers, yeah, because even in Truman, you also have. I think it is the midpoint when not necessarily Truman finds out, but when the audience finds out, we cut to the the televised version of Truman, and we immediately learn how it all works but even as an audience and they could have done something like that but what's interesting is the original like a ready player one cut out yeah <laughs> see neck beard sitting well, the, there. the original elevator pitch the olivia Wilde, i can't remember which i think it was a variety interview that she did but she said her elevator pitch for this film was imagine the life you've always fantasized about and then imagining discovering something that makes it impossible for you to stay in that life despite feeling so happy and that kind of goes more in line with, you know, my idea of her finding out halfway through the film and not right at the end of the film. Because then you have all this extra space to develop what, you know, is essentially the bunny storyline, which is barely a storyline because it's not in it. This idea of maybe she likes being in the simulation because it's so mm. pleasurable and nice. And it is better than working at the ER for 40 hour shift straight. But just the, but the idea that someone has like, trapped you and put you in this situation and removed the agency from you maybe that's where the temptation comes but, from but the film doesn't have time to do any but of that that's why i said i think the, the messaging getting caught up in so much in this men men like the against men storyline has right. clouded the fact like like we say it detracts and mm. i'm removing all background concepts just looking at the piece in front of me yeah We've seen, and men can 100, you can 100% address sex, sexism and men controlling women. You can 100% address these themes in a film. And some films do it really well. Mm. But it's because it's not always just like, oh, well, there's this guy with a god complex who's created this simulation in which we abduct women and put them into the simulation, basically, <laughs> against their wills and they're living their, their lives. Yeah. It's, like you said it's like yeah they they can still do that but the fact it's so it feels so binary and it's it's right like is where i don't i can't sit i don't sit well with it i think i think right. it the, the ends fact up losing that the, the point that it's so trying to be like oh all men are evil right they're the all the bad guys in this not the fact that there are people like controlling and abducting and and you can still have that, like we, yeah. you're like look at what Last Night in Soho does, mm. you know, and it does it well. Like it can takes that beautiful opening sequence when we enter into Soho in the sixties, right? And we meet Matt Smith, and we're utterly we're we're Anna Taylor Joy, and we're completely charmed by his presence. Yeah, and then that mythos is completely destroyed. Mm. 
and then flipped again at the end when yeah. we find out who the killer was. Yep, yep. Oh, God. It's fantastic. I love Last Night, so I don't care what anyone says. Oh, it's as a murky, it's a pretty average second act, but <laughs> it's that's no. But to your point, where they kind of do play with those gender expectations in, in that way, and and a woman's agency, which again, this film touches on it well. But I understand where you're coming from because the way they showcase this institutionalization or this this cult yeah. in a lot of ways is it almost is exclusively a vat for men to kidnap and abduct women. And it's very subtly put in there when when Jack, who I, by the way, I freaking love his, like, incel, not makeup, but, like, he, that version of him, the non-cleaned up Jack Chambers. Like, that's great. The fact that he has, like, a vertical screen, um, like a vertical desktop um, monitor that's got Discord running on it. Like, I love those little details. It's great. But when he does the, like, that interview process to join the cult, that's what I'm calling it, that's one of the questions is, you know, to, to do you know who you're going to pick as, like, your female counterpart? And the following question is, is there already a prior relationship there? So there's almost like an expectation that they're just going to kidnap any random woman they want on top of that. So I think those are cool details they've laid into there, but I think you're right. They're sort of hitting you over the head with this idea that, like, oh, well, yeah. this is a thing that men are going to use to just kidnap and brainwash and lobotomize women with. Yeah. And I don't mind that in general. I really, And I didn't really even mind it that much in this film, but I understand why that's hitting a lot of the criticism because it's not very clever. It's not as nearly as clever as a lot of the other films we've mentioned earlier. Yeah, today. I think there's just a cle- there's a really good story, like a really good film in here, mm. and there's characters like Bunny where it's like, why aren't we exploring that more? Because why not? I the have reality, no idea. the reality is, what her pacifism is a ves- is an allegory for exactly what you're talking about the mm. systemic intergenerational abuse that women have suffered, which Soho touches on, mm. and yet. What you're, you know, you've got this character that's completely and utterly comfortable in this swinging, uh, this, sorry, whatever the 50s were called. I can't remember the swinging 50s now, swinging, swinging 20s, I think it was. Yeah. Um, but it's nuclear family. Nuclear family logic where she's completely and utterly complacent, yet all she really is is just a bit of a smart Alec character that's like, oh, I know I'm in assimilation and right. you should run for some reason. Like, it's. Also weird that she well, lets her run. Well, that uh, that kind of plays into a, that fresh, um, death-proof sort of girls helping each other out thing, which, again, is like very it's barely in there. It's when Bunny tells her to run, which I get because at that point, oh, she's dead. They're straight up going to like kill her or, or take her real body. But then on the flip side, you've also got Frank's wife stabbing him, which is another like, oh, okay, I guess he's dead now. But there is the, the commentary of, like, okay, the women are coming together to get this one girl out of there. Um, bit of promising young woman as well in there mm. with, that, with that idea. Um, the sacrifice that many women have to go just to save the one. There's a bit of that in there too. But, I, but I think that the problem is, and, like, you pointed it out, is there are so many interesting ideas in here that were just completely ignored. Like, if they had done that, if they had given, you know, Florence Pugh or Alice the answers to those questions earlier. Because it's not that she's, you know, complacent at the start. She's, like, in love mm. with this life lifestyle that she's happened to find herself in. But there's almost no... Once she learns the truth, and again, to go back to her logline, where she says, can you live in this perfect life knowing that it's 
deeply seated in something horrible, that's not what this film's about. Because she doesn't find that out until the end. It would be so cool if a lot of this film was her knowing already. Like, I'm part of this, like, horrible cult in my boyfriend's... That's what happens with, with Truman, is there's that concept there where it's, it's so funny that she cites this film mm. but i feel like it's completely missed the point of truman because it is sort of yeah there's this god who has agency over truman's life and he doesn't have free will right but the world revolves around truman mm. and that's the whole the the whole conversation ed harris has with carrie at the end of that mm. film is like when you go out there you'll just be like a nobody right like in here you're every you're the eye of the beholder mm. And it's such a fantastic sort of like, it's like, yeah, Truman, we literally have followed this person's life since birth. Yeah. Has adoring fans all over the world. And we watch, and especially when the midpoint, when we start to see the fans at home watching, buying into wanting Truman to be free in the world. Yeah. Not from a TV show point, but finding that humanity in the person they're watching. Mm-hmm. It's like there's so many good beats in Truman Show. <laughs> and it's like this one just doesn't capture that at all because you're 100% right. It's it's She should discover it way earlier on and it becomes this this conflict of character where she's got everything here but she's... But it's rooted under this like dark, messed up... Regime. Exactly. And and that should be the turmoil that she faces emotionally which, which would have carried the film... A lot better. It wouldn't have been so weirdly paced. In Fallout 3, they suggest that. I'm just <laughs> that. You have Harry Styles there eating her out you know, every time he comes home. Which, by the way, I'm glad he's doing something with his mouth other than just talk. Because I, I can't stand that accent that he's trying to do. Just had to get that little ribbon there. <laughs> so, but the like, reality that, is that pleasure it, it, that she has there. Like, Have that be... The alternative to the horror that's going on underneath. There was no, there was no musical number, so it's not even the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! I will say though, I actually, it has a very Truman-esque ending, in that when she exits the simulation, that's the end of the movie. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm. At first, I was like, "Oh damn!" I want to see think more. This but film I needs li- to be a simulation, though. Hmm? Do you think this film needs to be a simulation? I wasn't bothered by the sci-fi. Aspect. No, I, I mean to me it made I'm, a lot of but sense. It's not about the like. Are you bothered by it? Mm. I'm saying, what if this was just a, a, a gated community sort of cult drama? Do you think that would make it more potent or resonant? I really don't know how much it would change. I mean, I I knew whatever the you know the the mystery solve would be. I knew whatever it would. I just knew it had to have some sort of like Black Klansman s like jarring jump forward in time in the sense that. You know, all this 50s iconography has to be juxtaposed with something uglier and more familiar with what what's actually happening, which turned out to be, yeah, this, like, incels bedroom <laughs> or a dirty, you know, ER hallway that Florence Pugh actually works at. Um, I don't know if you could have done that if it was just, like, some remote town that no one's yeah, getting sure. access to. Um, I don't know. I, I really... I'm trying to think of what the specific reason for it being, like, a virtual simulation. Mm. I... Because that, that draws the question. All, all these, like, red-coated minions, are they all real people? Are they just, like, simulation yeah. people? How annoying would that be? You get put in a simulation to be a little red-coat person. <laughs> and not Harry Styles. <laughs> you got the raw end of the stick there, buddy. <laughs> 
<laughs> Jake, you have anything else you'd like to add? That's fantastic. Um, I have one thing okay. I want to ask. Sure. Well, f- first off, before I ask that, I, I love the song choices in the film, and not only were there at least two songs that are in my current Spotify playlist, which would have to be Twilight Time by The Platters and Shaboom by The, the Chords, but literally those two songs were played back to back in this song, in this movie rather. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty nifty. The other thing I have to ask, was Florence Pugh at one point in this film, I think it's, I don't know where they were. It was when they were all kind of gossiping early in the film. And it's like a, it's like a model show because there's someone like, there's like a TV thing in the corner. And then the other end, there's someone like vacuuming their living room. Some sort of like expo thing the girls were at. Do you remember the thing I'm talking about? Yeah, like shopping, aren't they? Uh, yeah, something like that. That that scene. I swear to Christ, I could not focus on anything else. Florence Pugh is wearing companion cube earrings from the Portal game. I swear to Christ, that's what she was wearing. <laughs> I need to find this screenshot. Yeah. This is the campaign to remind everyone that you really love Florence Pugh. <laughs> or that I love Portal, which is one of the greatest games of all time. No, and Florence Pugh. I mean, go Florence Pugh. She's a she's a champion. She is, especially if she had to pick up the ball and direct the film. <laughs> she probably directed the best scenes. Probably. Oh god. No, Speaking that, that of distracted which, me. That distracted Jake, me. what was your highlight scene? I generally struggled with this one because I I couldn't really think of any scene that was significantly more like of a standout than anything else. But the one thing I will say about the very opening scene, and I, I don't know if this was intentional. This might, I might be giving the film a little too much credit here. But, you know, going into this film, which we know is about some sort of dystopian locale, that there's some mystery going on, there's some Trumacher-esque thing going on. You're going into the film most likely with that knowledge. And I like the fact that it starts on these sort of medium close-ups of, of Florence Pugh and Harry Styles and, you know, all the free girls. They're sort of balancing the drinks on their heads and they're drunk and having a good time and whatnot. But I appreciated that the camera was just, with each cut was getting slowly wider and wider, which I thought was like a nice way of introducing like, oh, here are our two characters. Is this before they were, you know, indoctrinated into this, you know, 50s project thing? Oh, no, but those characters are there too. Oh, now now the camera's wide and I'm seeing the interior of the house. I I just kind of like that slow reveal that was happening. Again, Mm. I don't know if that was intentional, but that I noticed that with the camera work and I thought that was cool. Yeah, cool. What about you? Um, hmm. <laughs> oh, the oh, the plane crash sequence is pretty interesting. Hmm. Um, kind of reminded me a little bit of Breaking Bad, just the oh, on yeah. the veranda <laughs> on the what? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that Albuquer- Albuquerque's son and just has the same sort of vibe? <laughs> it is very hot in that desert out there, isn't it? Yeah, the Californian desert. I think there's some cool little trickery with the camera, like with the hitting the wall and stuff like that. Mm. And I would say that's probably um, oh, when the wall squishes, flies. Yeah, Pugans. that's cool. That's a cool visual effect. There's some cool. Um, probably could have used more of that if we're going to push the sci-fi elements, but sure. Um, Maybe that was the case of liking one scene in Inception and then just slotting that in. <laughs> um, I'm surprised they didn't do... Because this, this is the other thing I was wondering about with Olivia Wilde, especially off Booksmart, where she had that one scene in Booksmart that was just so wildly stylistically different, is mm. when they turn into dolls. Yes. And that's that's just such a brilliant scene. I was wondering if she was going to take any of that like fun, surrealistic uh, scenery and put it mm. in this film. And other than the glass, you're right... 
not even the um, like the dioramas or like the circular map of of victory. Mm. No, she didn't really do anything. With I that. legit think this film in this script mm. in the hands of um, lesser known actors would have been a drastically better film. I think really? the I think the cast the the budget I think you could take a film like this and you could make it you know maybe maybe the same budget but maybe you take all the cast and the ego out of it and I reckon because I reckon that's that has impacted the film that we're watching um in an extent and not like what we're taking into the film I think the shooting of the film hmm. it's impacted that and I think it's affected the narrative that we've watched to a point where I think it's affected how clear and effective the message of this film could be. Because I think it's a really interesting concept. Yeah. It's a cool... It's a darker turn on, on The Truman Show. It's a 21st century vision. of a, 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 Could be a great feminist reading film. But it, it falls short. Because yeah. it's been lost to the... The worlds of, of actors' egos and and uh, honestly behind the behind the camera politics, I think it's really affected yeah. it. I think there is an element of directors keeping track of like their star-studded cast, and I immediately think of Man on the Moon with Miles Foreman, Jim Carrey. He was barely able to keep that man <laughs> in check and working, mm-hmm. and. Um, I think that's just like an unfortunate skill that directors need to maintain is not only just the professionalism, which we talked about earlier, but if you're going to have a star-studded cast, and especially one that does become as un-chemistryic, what's the word? One with a lack of chemistry is the ones that these this cast seemingly have. Um, that's unfortunately part of the job of the director, yeah. is to just manage that talent, manage that shit. I just think there's, um, you know... Or maybe this the maybe it's the case of having, honestly, having a more amateur director, a director that's not as experienced. Um, like Olivia Wilde had a great outing with Booksmart, but perhaps there's just not the experience there to quite handle as much. Wasn't as much star power in um, Booksmart. Sure. So maybe there's becomes more malleable. Maybe. I mean, I I feel like. If you gave this script to someone like Sophia Coppola, I think we could get a really good, like a really good film, a Virgin Suicides. But she's a much so, more experienced director. Than, that's what I mean. Yeah. Right. Um, I thought you were saying even, give it to a less experienced. No, director. no, more experienced. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. This is the case of a less experienced director, maybe. Right. Not okay. Fully handling this. Because my matter. my counter in, into the cast, and if, if we're not talking about a star-studded cast that have to sort of gel and get along. My thinking is if Florence Pugh wasn't in this film, this film would be far worse. I don't think it's a bad film. I don't. I kind of ripped on it quite a lot. I think there's a lot of problems. But I generally think that the cinematography and production design and all of that stuff, I think it's pretty ace. I think it's wonderful. And I I think a lot of the performance here are are great from Florence Pugh to fine. With Harry Styles, just make sure he stops talking. But I I think a less experienced cast or um I guess he's saying a, le- a more experienced director I don't know if that would have helped the film. Fair enough, because it's already getting carried by a lot of its cast. I feel like yeah. there you go. Don't <laughs> worry, darling is currently out in cinemas near you. Speaking of cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this pretty, uh, week? It's 
pretty light week from the streamers. All I got is a couple films from Paramount Plus, which includes Significant Other, uh, which follows a young couple who take a remote backpacking trip through the Pacific Northwest before the journey becomes sinister. And uh, it kind of reminds me of that new sort of ice-cold drama that Netflix has put out. I'm already forgetting what it's called. And then you've got Monster High the Movie, which is a Nickelodeon production about a half-human, half-werewolf who joins a new school called Monster High. Bit of Sky High vibes there, perhaps? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I never watched Sky High. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, sake. You're out of your mind. We've got to fix that. That and School of Rock. I mean, you've now you've seen School of Rock, which is excellent. Yes. But we've got we've got to fix that. A couple of other films I noticed are coming to Netflix include Mila Kunis's Luckiest Girl Alive, where she plays a writer in New York City, and her perfect life starts to unravel when a true crime documentary forces her to confront her harrowing high school history based on a 2015 novel. That sounds pretty cool. Mm. I like the idea of like a horror film that's based around something that had happened many, many years ago, and it's almost just like a psychological revisiting of that. Kind of like It Chapter 2, but if the clown didn't come back. That whole that whole shebang. We've also got Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes, which is pretty relevant to uh, <laughs> to the recent Jeffrey Dahmer show. Have you, you noticed that? Seen people talk about it? The the show? Yeah, the Jeffrey Dahmer one. Yeah, I saw it on, uh, what's it called? On uh, Netflix. Yeah. Any good? Oh, people are raving about it. Okay. I saw clips of it. And it was it looks really He's good. He's the dude who ate people, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Not a lot of messed up things that guy was up num, to. Num. <laughs> num, num, In num, a num. delectable ear. Oh my goodness. And yeah. And coming to cinemas this week we have from director David O. Russell. It's been a hot minute since he's been around. Uh Amsterdam sees a real life story of three friends framed for murder in the nineteen thirties. It stars <clears throat> Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, Anya Taylor-Joy, Chris Mock, Michael Shannon, Rami Malek, Mike Myers, Robert De Niro, and Taylor Swift. That's a lot of people. That's to... more than three people. That's... <laughs> I, I, think, I think there's three people in there, plus some side characters. <laughs> I don't think they're all involved. Uh, you're, you're a funny man, Zeke. Thank you. Also coming, you got Wog Boys Forever, which is the third film in the Australian comedy series. And on-course screenings for Billy Joel live at Yankee Stadium, which came out in 1990, I believe, uh, from Wednesday the 5th. E.T., phone home. It's not the title. It's just the, it's it's just the, the sequel. It's just the, yeah, the sequel, yeah. E.T. at Palace from Friday the 7th, or I should say on Friday the 7th. And a Rocky Horror Picture Show screening at Luna on Sunday the 9th. Those interactive ones, they're meant to be very fun. They are. Yeah. But that's everything coming to streaming and cinemas this week. All right, dramas. Well, it's time for us to move into our 39th director's corner. But Jake, what's the film? And Wait, who's the director and what are we watching? (laughs) Which do I tell you first? Well, next week, and it's kind of shocking, we we both generally thought we might have already done done this director, but we have not. It's October. It's October. So it seems uh, right. Last year, we we tackled Halloween inside and out. We did like five horror films back to back Mm -hmm. to back to back to back. So uh, we might do something similar this month. We'll see how it pans out. Yes. But of course, we're going to start with this director's corner, John Carpenter, and his film, the 1982 film, The Thing. Mayday. Mayday. This is US Station 31. You read me? Found something in the ice. We need some help down here. 
discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can be one of those things! A research team finds an alien being that has fallen from the sky and is starting to hunt them down. Things take a sinister turn when they realize that the creature can take the shape of its victims. Mm, you're very excited about this. I love this. This is my favorite Carpenter film. Yeah. But I might have to watch more than one Carpenter film this week if I can be brave enough, Jake. Oh, yeah, I know. He's got a, a good scary resume under his belt. And I've never seen The Thing. So this is going to be a really good, interesting dive in but I, i'm gonna say would you consider that a controversial take you like the thing more than halloween well these are pretty 50 50 yeah i was gonna say because that would not surprise me at all because we've talked about halloween many 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 episodes ago i think it's good if not a tid bit overrated it's just a teeny bit Teeny tiny bit. Spicy. We'll have to talk about it next week <laughs> on his director's corner. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Trip Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with the theme.